nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Welcome to Swansea and the Twilight Show. Meet Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tonight we're talking de-escalation, co-regulation, attunement and emotional coaching. How do we support students who are struggling to regulate their emotions in school? We're discussing some of the strategies that can help young people when they really need it. Tune in, talk it out. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show, meet Nathan Ginn. The first Thursday Twilight Show of the year um, 2023 and I should say a big shout out if you do follow us on Twitter on Instagram on any of the social medias we have changed our username so you can now find us at TT Radio Official uh, new year new name uh, and so off we go um, now I said at the start in the introduction there that we were going to be talking about a number of things you know sometimes I think uh, a little bit of a word soup we use these words, we throw them around a lot. Things like de-escalation, things like co-regulation, uh, attunement, emotion coaching, emotional coaching. All of these uh, type things that we talk about, we're going to unpick some of them. We're going to end the show particularly with some kind of proactive, useful tips. But we're going to start pulling those threads apart. What we're really talking about is um, a kind of mental health first aid it is sometimes referred to as those actions that we sometimes need as teachers when faced in primary in secondary in whatever setting when we're faced with children who are struggling with their emotions and now i've, I've really struggled i've really thought about the, the the wording of this when i talk about it and i you know i think we can sometimes talk about people being emotional how we use those words people being upset what they mean and i think it is you know one of the first steps to really unpick with your team with with your staff at your setting um what you mean by that because when i say that a child is struggling with their emotions they could be being loud and angry they could be being uh, hyper in their in their actions in their moods they could be being very low and very quiet and very still so there are lots of different ways that this is going to present itself and of course as many different students as we have there are really different ways and different things that will work with some students and and not with others that you know that when it comes to dealing with people as people it is really tricky and and that's where some of those words like attunement start coming in and we're talking about kind of looking for those clues, looking for those cues, looking for those signs about what it is. But I, I wanted to start off, I wanted to talk about an article. Well, it's been in a lot of newspapers, but the one I'm pulling from here tonight is uh, the Guardian newspaper article on the Tuesday, the 3rd of January this year. It was by Andrew Gregory. Um, it started with the headline, Child Referrals for Mental Health Care in England 
up 39% in a year. The pandemic, social inequality, austerity, online harm are fueling soaring NHS referrals, say experts, as the subheading there. Now, this was covered by a lot of newspapers. You know, if you've seen it, if you've seen some of the facts elsewhere, it'd be great to hear your opinions. Remember, we are live. We're here, so you can reach out to us. You can tweet us at TT Radio Official. You can tweet me at Lesson Copy. You can, if you are listening in the Podbean app, even text in through the app. We will see it in the chat. And, of course, you can call in if you have something that you want to share. If you're listening in the Podbean app, if you're listening afterwards as a podcast, by all means, message us, join the conversation there, share your thoughts, share your ideas. But I'm going to start off with this uh, newspaper article, as I say, from The Guardian from this week. Now, it starts off by saying uh, figures uh, include children who are suicidal, self-harming, suffering serious depression or anxiety, and those with eating disorders. The number of children in England needing treatment for serious mental health problems has risen by 39% in a year, official data shows. They go on to say that experts say the pandemic, social inequality, austerity and online harm were fueling a crisis in which the NHS mental health treatment referrals for under 18s have increased to more than 1.1 million last year. They quote Dr. Elaine Lockhart, the chair of the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Facility at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, um, who said that the rising referrals reflected a whole range of illnesses. And she said uh, that specialist services are needed to respond to the most urgent and the most unwell, including young people suffering from psychosis, suicidal thoughts and severe anxiety disorder. She went on to say that targets for seeing children urgently with eating disorders were sliding completely and that more staff were needed. Now, that might be something that you reflect if you're someone in school who is in that pastoral role or in that safeguarding position, who is making referrals, uh, talking to people like CAMS, talking to external agencies, looking for support. You might recognise uh, the, the difficulty in, in seeking support sometimes or the waiting lists as they're sometimes referred to uh, for a referral or sometimes the criteria you know that is needed to meet a threshold as it is sometimes called uh, for those referrals for them to be acted on. Uh, in the article uh, Dr Lockhart goes on to say I, I think what's frustrating for us is that if we could see them more quickly and intervene then the difficulties might not become as severe as they do because they've had to wait. Now, it also quotes Tom Madders, uh, who's director of campaigns at Young Minds, the charity, who said that the figures were deeply concerning, and they're adding that last year had been one of the most difficult for the age group. And we're talking here sort of under 18s and, and teenagers. Um, Emerging from the pandemic to more limited prospects for their futures, coupled with an increase in academic pressure to catch up on lost learning and the impact of the cost of living crisis. Uh, the current state of play cannot continue. The government must get a grip of the situation, is what he said um, in the article from The Guardian. As I say, they finish on some numbers around spending. And uh, this is from the Department of Health and Social Care spokesperson. She said, we're already investing 2.3 billion a year into mental health services, um, meaning an additional uh, 345,000 children and young people will be able to access support by 2024. 
and we're aiming to grow mental health workforce by 27,000 more staff uh, this time too. Now, you know, it does worry me, this, this, this what feels like, you know, a sudden increase, and it'd be great to hear your thoughts on it. Um, has there been a sudden increase, this the pandemic? Is it the pressure for catch-up from the pandemic? Is it um, that we have just hit a kind of fresh watershed moment where the system is, is, is not able to cope? Now, one of the things that has been happening, and, and you know, as as people who work in education, if you're listening to this, you might reflect on it yourselves, that you've seen in schools, schools being asked to pick up more and more of that burden, more and more interventions being asked of the schools when support is asked externally. And that is something I would reflect on in previous local authorities, not the one that I work in at the moment, but I have worked in places where things have been put back on the school. School has reached out to seek help and kind of something is, is bit, there has been sort of a, a, a bounce back, for want of a better word, of is that something you could do in school? Is there someone in school who could be doing that intervention or could be doing some work on that with the young people? Now, I wanted to bring in an article then just to counterbalance that and to give us something to reflect on as we discuss through. And this piece is from this week as well, uh, you know, reflecting on the, the same situation that we, we find ourselves in, this national situation. And this is an opinion piece from The Big Issue, and it was uh, published on the 4th of January uh, of this year, 2023. Um, and this is uh, by Louisa Rose, who's a CEO of charity called Beyond and founder of the Now and Beyond National Mental Health Festival for schools and colleges. Um, the headline that it sits under is, as more children wait for mental health treatment, we need to remember teachers are not social workers. And this is something as we go through this whole bit, and particularly when we get to the tips and the advice, you know, that there are things we can do. There are steps that we can take as educators, as teachers in schools, and things that we should definitely be doing. But we need to know when, when we are overstepping our remit, for want of a better word. Now, we are first aiders. We are not doctors. And that is the bit that we need to constantly be aware of, that, that idea that we should be referring. And I know that is hard. And I know, you know, I've just read out from the article about how difficult it is for us and that more referrals are needing to go in but we still have to keep in our mind that point at which we are doing more than supporting we you know we need to refer and we need professional uh and I, I don't mean that in a negative way that any of us as educators are not professionals we need trained professional support from a specialist background anyway We'll go to the article here. Um, it says, more than a million children are now being referred to mental health treatment. Often stuck on huge waiting lists, Louisa Rose, the CEO of Charity Beyond, says that while they're left in limbo, teachers need tools to support them. I agree. That's hopefully what we're going to be able to discuss here. It'd be great to hear what your school's doing at the moment to support young people, uh, you know, even if they are on waiting lists, even if they are not uh, in the process of being referred. I think, you know, there are points, there are steps pre that that we should be doing. And it'd be great to hear what you're doing in those early stages. She says, uh, we're in the first working week of 2023 and the NHS statistics are already showing a frightening pattern when it comes to the well-being of a children and young people. New data published this week shows that the 39% increase in referrals for mental health treatment for under 18s in just one year. 
it'll be interesting to see what happens this year. You know, whether that we continue to see that uh, increase in trend, it would be worrying. She says the problem, as many of us working in the sector know too well, is that CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, is already struggling to cope with the referrals and subsequently 26% are rejected. Now, I'm going to ask you to hold on to that number in your head for a second. Just think about that 26% of referrals. I'm talking here at this point about every young person. I'm not saying, you know, it, this, we're not talking about that's 26% of your school who are probably doing okay, probably don't need specialist help. We're talking about you as a school have decided or someone, potentially their GP or doctor, has decided to put in a referral to CAMS. So it's got to that point where, you know, we are seriously considering completing some, some paperwork where we are going to put our referral in. You know, this is not a small step and it is not done lightly by schools, I would say. You know, I, I would I would suggest that actually quite the opposite way. There are things that schools do before that process. So 26% of those referrals that you've put in are rejected. And that to me is a shocking statistic. She goes on to say though, however, even for those who do not retain their place on the list, waiting times are unbearably high, meaning that many children and young people will see a decline in their mental health as they wait for treatment. One thing that we often hear in response to the NHS mental health pressures is the harmful narrative that we are over-medicalising children's experiences. It'd be interesting to hear what, you know, some of our listeners think about that. Are we uh, over-labelling, over-medicalising? Are we, you know... Uh, labelling uh, some of our children, our young people, with some of these uh, conditions, some of these um, issues uh, too easily. I would say the, the opposite. I would say actually, you know, schools are, are aware of the pressures. Schools are aware of the 26% of referrals that get turned down. Schools are acutely aware and are not over-medicalising. Uh, you know, uh, she goes on to say it's a fine line between the normal stresses and psychological distress, which hopefully is what we are going to picture. You know, that's what we want to talk about as things that we within our remit as educational professionals should be thinking about how we can deal with. And she says, if we don't tread carefully, we risk the lives of children and young people if we don't deal with the bigger issues and refer when needing. Invalidating someone's concerns and feelings is dangerous, and yet society are quick to do it. She brings up the case of Meghan Markle and other media figures. You know, it is a very, we are still, you know, we have made big strides when it comes to mental health. But, you know, we are still a way down the line from it being accepted, from people not making judgments about it. Um, she pulls together some ideas about how she thinks we should deal with these pressures in the article. Um, you know, she she does rightly say there, as, as, as far as I'd say, it's easy to place the burden of responsibility on schools. After all, uh, teachers are education professionals and should play a role in social well-being. I agree. I agree on both counts. You know, schools do often have the burden placed on them. They should be running interventions. They should be finding time within the school day to deal with social issues. And we should. But also, it's easy to place the burden of responsibility on schools. I agree with that as well. 
She does say, though, it's highly unreasonable to expect teachers to also play social worker, counsellor and carer. They might be able to spot the signs, given how much time they're spending with pupils on a day-to-day basis, but their role shouldn't go beyond the remit of mental health first aider what we're talking about tonight hopefully and that's why I wanted this article in particular to to be fresh in our minds when we're talking about this testament fact is that young people's mental health has declined so has the mental health of teachers and she quotes a 2022 uh, Tess teacher well-being survey that reported that nine in ten school leaders were experiencing poor mental health I think schools are taking that burden onto themselves and I think you know we have done shows before have a look back through about how um, schools with mental health supervision whether that be from um, educational psychologists or whether that be from mental health nurses or however you get it I think that you know there is something there that we need to unpick time for another show though on that now uh, she says we need to provide teachers with the tools the knowledge and the support but we need to bear in mind the reason behind doing this is to help them with preventative measures and signposting not to leave them to solve the problems itself so i apologize if you thought you were coming here too far to be able to solve the problems it's not you know we are very much pitched this evening and you know open to hearing your ideas and your thoughts on it about what preventative measures and signposting and mental health first aid steps we can take she says put simply schools should never be considered a secondary cams service and i agree entirely you know we should be fighting for that support for our young people she says we need to they have access to high quality free easy to roll out tools and resources and signposting to a range of specialist partners uh, we need to ensure that we continue to educate pupils in emotional literacy and encourage them to speak out at the earliest possible opportunity before their mental health hits crisis point she says the solution sits with the government you know i think there is solutions for us as well uh, you know, things that we can be doing, things, questions we can be asking. Uh, she brings the analogy, uh, if we have a common cold, we all know uh, that we need to focus on protecting our immune system and preventing deterioration. We might expect a teacher to tell a child to wrap up warm or cover their mouth when they cough, but we'd never expect them to prescribe antibiotics or place them on a ventilator. And it's the same when it comes to mental health. That, for me, is the part where we need to pause it sets the scene for us. We are in a mental health crisis for our young people. According to the data, you know, that's from the Guardian article. Young people are struggling. But equally, from the Big Issue article there, it is not our place to provide all of the support. That preemptive, that being aware of the signs, that early support, that mental health first aid, those are the things that we need to know how to do. And those are the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. Now, this show wouldn't be possible without the help of John Cat Educational, who support us and obviously provide a great deal of inspiration to my bookshelf themselves. And a big shout out to them as we go. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. 
Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Boradar Pab, Chris Abatawi, hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show on Teachers Talk Radio with me, Nathan Ginn. Um, tonight we have been talking about de-escalation, or we are going to be talking about de-escalation, co-regulation, attunement, emotional coaching, how do we support students who are struggling to regulate their emotions in school. Um, we're going to discuss some of the strategies that can help young people when they really need it. Now, we started off our show talking about some of the articles in the news recently. Perhaps you've read them. Remember, as you're listening in, you can tweet us at TT Radio Official. You can, if you're listening live in the Podbean app, text us in there or even click that call-in button and join the conversation to tune in and talk it out. But the articles this week have been talking about that massive increase in young people uh, seeking support, professional support for mental health uh, need. Um, but the reflection on this and a reflection, you know, a valid concern that I always have about what schools are capable of doing, I would be interested to know if you're listening now uh, or, you know, feel free to message me if you're listening to this as a podcast afterwards. I would be interested to know how many schools now have increased the amount of people within even pastoral team uh, their well-being team, whatever it is that your school is calling that. You know, how many schools have increased the number of people working within those either interventions or pastoral support roles or the time allocated to it because of what we see? I, anecdotally, I would say in my own experience, I think this is an area that is growing. This is an area that schools are finding themselves needing to allocate more resources to, more time to, um, and not necessarily through a uh, uh, increase in funding. It is not necessarily that you know local authorities or even the governments as a whole. And I say governments because uh, here in Wales, education is a devolved matter, um, so it is not the same as in England our education system, um, but. That money is not coming into schools. It is having to be taken from elsewhere. Now, there are things that we can do. And some of the things that we're going to be talking about this evening um, have many, many names, you know. Um, and so we will skate across them. You know, it, it may be that you call them one thing. It may be that we call them a different thing. It may be that there is a lot of overlap here. And I think that is one of the things. But it is easy for us. And I always worry that we don't over-label something. Say we do this you know, and I'm doing inverted commas with my fingers there, we use this method. And that is it. It's understanding what that entails. So, you know, if we start off by establishing that for me, and hopefully for a lot of uh, people listening, mental health is as important as physical health. And it's crucial that we prioritise the mental health of our students. According to the World Health Organisation, one in four people in the world be affected by uh, 
mental or neurological disorders at some point in their life. It's a statistic that highlights the importance of addressing mental health issues early on in life, and schools are the perfect place to do this. Uh, furthermore, research has shown that mental health problems in childhood can have long-lasting effects into adulthood. For example, a study published in the Journal of American Medical Association found that children with mental health disorders were more likely to experience problems with employment, relationships, physical health later in life. And that's Kim et al. 2015, if you want to find the research paper on it. There are a number of concerns around young people's mental health at the moment. We've heard them in the, you know, in, in some of those newspaper articles that we started the show with. But, you know, the rising rates of mental health disorders. There have been a significant increase in the prevalence of mental health disorders among young people in recent years. The stigma. There's still a stigma attached to mental illness, which can prevent young people from seeking help and support. Um, lack of access to mental health services. Uh, many young people do not have access to mental health services. We heard, uh, you know, earlier on in the show, 26%, you know, a quarter of referrals to CAMS are rejected or are, are bounced back. And that, you know, this not having access either because it's just not available in their area or because it's, you know, it's too expensive, whether that be for the school to put in place, for parents to put in place, or for the local authority to put in place. Another issue that, 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 that concerns people at the moment, high levels of stress. Young people face today high levels of stress and pressure, which contribute to the development of mental health problems. And we can see those coming from a number of different places. But one of those is social media. The, social media, the use of social media has been linked to an increase in mental health problems among young people, particularly due to the pressure to present a perfect image online or to live that perfect online <laughs> image offline at home you know we are coming back from uh christmas and i guarantee the young people that you are uh, interacting with will have been on social media will have seen posts of people in matching pajamas uh, you know opening wonderful presents and they will have sat there looking at those whilst potentially for some of our young people sat in a cold damp uh dark house with things that make them feel uh, less worth or worth less of less per, personal worth you know it is social media is so dangerous in that sense because people try to live the, the the online life in their real or they judge themselves against it you know leading on from that is the the, the issue of bullying bullying has always and continues to be a major concern for young people's mental health it lead to feelings of anxiety depression low self-esteem all of those issues on top of that we've got the tr aspect of trauma young people can experience trauma abuse neglect we know that those things happen adverse childhood experiences and we'll talk about those a little bit more in the show uh, as we move on but they can have a long-term impact on young people's mental health into adulthood and of course you know, schools themselves can be emotionally challenging for young people in a number of ways. You know, when we are designing our educational system, when we are talking about the things we are doing, academic pressure, the pressure to succeed academically can be stressful for young people, especially if they feel that they're not meeting expectations. 
you know, there is a lot of comparing. We have built a system where we compare ourselves to other people, to our siblings, to our peers, to national averages. You know, we set benchmarks and target grades and things that we should get. Academic pressure exists there. And if we're not careful, can add to that burden of mental health. There are social challenges in school as well. You know, this is an environment where we choose to put a whole group of people together. Navigating those social relationships at school can be difficult, especially for young people who are shy, have difficulty making friends. And again, you know, when we're talking about school, uh, we have to accept that in some form of bullying or antisocial behaviour will exist on our premises and will affect our young people you know the changes the transitions all of those things that happen you know this time of year is is potentially not so bad for most children but at the start of year the end of year schools can be emotionally challenging due to the many changes and transitions that they experience and for some in a school day you know we're not just talking about changing from year to year as we might see uh you know in a primary school but our school days are full of transitions and whether that be you know changing from one teacher to another the uh, the burden the social anxiety the, the the struggles for some young people in dealing with that and negotiating that negotiating changes from a quiet classroom to a noisy corridor to uh, outside there are a lot of transitions and changes within the school day okay on top of that there are a lot of changes that happen within a school year you know, children might be moving up down sets if you use them. Children might be moving classes. People might be choosing their options or looking where they're going to go next. There is a lot of change that goes on within the school year. And that is something that we need to be aware of. On top of that, of course, there is the lack of support that some young people might find. If they do not have a strong support system at home, at school, within their friendships, it might leave them feeling isolated and alone. Now, we could, you know, we can consider some of those things. And when we go through some of the steps that we can take to support young people with their uh, emotions at school, we should definitely be thinking about some of those things, some of those general factors about how we build the school day. Some of them are a little bit beyond what we can do as teachers, you know, as far as changing the academic systems of GCSE results and things like that. But there are things that we as schools can do. We have to accept, though, that we are part of a larger society and it would be it would be ill-placed to us not to you know touch on adverse childhood experiences aces as they're sometimes called they're traumatic events that occur in uh, childhood and can have a negative impact on child's uh, physical emotional and their mental health and you know these aces can include physical, emotional, sexual abuse, neglect, household dysfunction, such as domestic violence or substance abuse, uh, mental illness within a parent or caregiver, separation, divorce of parents, incarceration of a parent, or experiencing racism or discrimination. And these types of experiences can affect a child before they even arrive at school. In the morning, you know, by causing them to feel anxious, distressed, overwhelmed, they're also having difficulty sleeping potentially or concentrating or interacting with others. They can affect us in a number of ways, including, you know, additional problems such as poor nutrition or illness or developmental delays. 
when we talk about those children coming into school as we see them and the need for us to have some of the tools that hopefully we will talk about those emotional first aid tools that teachers need throughout the school day there's an analogy that i like and it's a a, a poker chips analogy and for any of you who don't gamble or play cards I'll, I'll, I'll explain it as we go through but this poker chips analogy for social interactions in school it refers to the idea that, that students have a limited number of those round little poker chip discs that are used for gambling and they have monetary value attached to them or that they if we think of those poker chips or think of the social resources that a young person has uh, as those poker chips and they use them to interact with their peers. Now, just as a poker player might carefully decide how to use their chips in order to maximise their chance of winning, students must also decide how they use their social resources in order to navigate the school day and situations effectively. For example, a student might use some of their chips to initiate conversations with their peers, to join groups, to ask for help. But they must also be mindful of how their actions might be perceived by others and how they might impact their relationships. It's important that the students be aware of the social dynamics at play and they're using their chips wisely in order to build and maintain positive relationships with their peers. Now, when we consider that and consider some of our young people as they come into school and how many poker chips they might have, you know, some children, as they return from their Christmas holidays will have over the Christmas holidays accrued a you know a mountain of these social poker chips that they can use and when they come into school and you ask them a question or to speak in front of class they're happy to to gamble away their social poker chips and say yeah I, you know I'll put my hand up I'll share what I did I don't mind if that embarrasses me or changes my relationship with the group at all I can I've got plenty of poker chips that I can use and other children don't now, when a poker player plays, they're heavily influenced by the number of chips that they have. When a player has a lot of chips, they're in a position of strength and can afford to be more aggressive in their betting and bluffing. And they've got resources to back up their actions if, if it goes wrong. On the other hand, when a player has fewer chips, they may have to be more conservative in their play. They might be avoiding risky bets. They don't have much to lose before they lose it all. Uh so if you think about that of the young people that you're working with and as they're returning from Christmas and they, they've got their differing amounts of poker chips and you, when you ask someone a question, they're going to gamble in a number of different ways. Now, someone who has a lot of chips might be free and relaxed. and Yeah, OK, so if I lose one there, it doesn't matter. You know, I'll put my hand up. It's the wrong answer. I've lost a poker chip. It's OK. You know, I've still got enough poker chips to, to go and uh, chat with my friends and talk to that girl at lunchtime I've got plenty of poker chips left someone who doesn't have enough of those poker chips is, is going to behave in a number in a slightly different way they might be quiet they might be withdrawn they might not want to engage with the questioning that's going on when they get something wrong they might react in a different way and a way that maybe we don't expect or we haven't seen from other children oh they only got a question wrong why are they reacting that way well if they don't have a lot of these social poker chips then that is uh, losing one, getting one mistake can be that, that that final straw can really push them. You know, they needed the rest of those poker chips because they had to uh, do something after school. They had to go and talk to their friends. They had to ask the dinner lady for her money back because she overcharged her the day before. 
what I'm saying is, depending on your social situation or what you bring to school can change how you emotionally react with the challenges and stresses of the school day that we've listed there. Now, we've discussed the importance of mental health in schools. So let's talk about some of the strategies that teachers can use to support students with their mental health. So these are the more general. We'll start with the general as we talked, you know, remember we are not talking about high cost, high skill interventions here. That is not our role. When we discussed the big issue article at the start, you know, we do not need teachers to become a subsidiary of uh, CAMS. What we are looking for is teachers to have the skills and the support available to them to be able to interact. Now, the, the first one uh, that all of us could be looking at or should be looking at is to create a supportive classroom environment. You know, a positive, supportive classroom environment can have a big impact on students' mental health. This includes things like having a predictable, consistent routine, using positive reinforcement, promoting a sense of belonging and community among all of our students. Now, I hope that that is something. It'd be great to hear, you know, some of your ideas about how you've been doing that, how you've been using that. But you know, that would be something that I hope is a standard for all of us. Create that supportive classroom environment. Uh, the second one, when we talk about uh, how we can encourage and support mental health within our school at a general level, you know, is encouraging that physical activity, healthy habits. Um, physical activity has been shown to have a number of mental health benefits, including reducing stress, improving mood. That's from Smith et al. 2018, if you're looking for the research. So encouraging students to engage in physical activity and adopt healthy habits, such as getting enough sleep, eating nutritious diet, can go a long way in supporting their mental health. Again, these general setups that we can use to create a mentally healthy school. One of the other aspects that we can look at is teaching coping skills. And I've, there's been a lot of feedback around people and how they interact. Kickback possibly against teaching mindfulness, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we go through. It'd be interesting to hear if there is anyone who is running mindfulness lessons or mindfulness activities, because there has, or at least I've perceived there to be a kind of kickback against that recently where people are less keen to be doing things such as meditation in schools, although there are schools who do that very effectively. Um, but teaching coping skills to students such as deep breathing, mindfulness, problem solving that can help them stress in general and difficult emotions in a healthy way. And these skills can be taught through activities and exercise in the classroom, and they can also be modelled by the teacher. So those are three of the things that we can start with by doing it across the whole school. And I would hope that most schools are doing them. And, you know, it'd be interesting to reflect as you listen, thinking about which of those categories you are currently within your school doing or you feel you are doing well. Uh, the final one, that I think possibly we sometimes miss out, although schools are getting slightly better at, is this idea of identifying and addressing mental health concerns. So it's important for teachers to be aware of the signs that a student is struggling with their mental health, such as changing in, changes in behaviour, difficulty concentrating, decreased participation in class. And if a teacher notices these signs, 
how do they reach out to the student to offer support and if necessary refer the student to a mental health professional and that phrase is going to come up a lot as we go through this we get to a point where it stops being mental health first aid and we need to refer the student to a mental health professional um obviously this is a challenge for us we heard at the start from that guardian article about how uh, referrals are up you know people reaching out for help 39 percent increase in a year and we've also heard that cams are turning back or turning down a quarter of all of the referrals that they receive and i don't think people are over referring i don't think these are you know flippant referrals that teachers are putting in it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on that you know if we are waiting and seriously uh, choosing when we need to put those referrals in or whether it be from school or from a GP and a quarter of them are bouncing back at some point that will start changing people's behavior and that worries me because we need to not take on all the burden of schools we need to as I say there when we're identifying and addressing these mental health concerns we need to be referring them on to a mental health professional when appropriate so as far as that general stuff that schools can do Mental health is an important aspect of overall well-being, and it's crucial that we prioritise the mental health of students in the school by creating a supportive classroom environment, encouraging physical activity and healthy habits, and teaching coping skills, and identifying and addressing the mental health concerns that you know, and teachers playing a key role in that and supporting their students in their good general health. But that is very much the general. Now, the parts that I specifically wanted us to have the chance to discuss and talk through were these words of emotional regulation and de-escalation. And so if we start off, of, you know, our, our, our discussion tonight, as we talk it through, talking about emotional regulation, and when we talk about that, what we're referring to is someone's ability to manage their own emotions, their thoughts and their behaviours to achieve a desired outcome. And it's an important skill for students to learn in order to succeed in school and in life and so there are many strategies that students can use to help regulate their emotions and you know we've talked about a few of those already and they include you know deep breathing counting to 10 taking breaks to calm down it's important for students to learn how to identify and express their emotions in a healthy way as well and teachers and parents can support students in developing their emotional regulation skills and they can do this by modeling appropriate behavior providing a supportive and nurturing environment and and teaching those strategies and it's also helpful for us to think about providing opportunities for students to practice emotional regulation such as through role play or problem solving activities and finding that time in the day and that might seem uh, strange to say you know but I d if we consider our approach to uh, mental health and all of these skills in the same way that we approach any subject you know the opportunities to practice things that we've learned and try new skills are important ones and whilst you know research does suggest that some of these skills are not transferable to different situations at least we've had exposure to them and opportunities to discuss them and to look through them and i think that you know it is a big ask to take that from a school day, but when students are able to regulate their emotions, they're better able to focus on their studies, form positive relationships with their peers and their teachers and make good decisions. It's something that pays off.
Um, obviously, on the other hand, when students struggle with emotional regulation, they'll have difficulty paying attention in class, they'll have difficulty controlling their behaviour and managing their workload. And it can lead to academic and social difficulties, which in turn can affect their overall well-being and their success at school. It's something that we need to do. Um, so supporting students in developing their emotional regulation skills can be this important part of overall well-being. Okay, beyond the general, beyond our self, our safe and secure environment that we talked about, first of all, setting up and how we achieve that. Now, there's a growing body of research on the importance of this kind of emotional regulation and academic success. And some of the key findings when we talk about it are, you know, emotional regulation is a key predictor of academic success. So there's studies that have found that students are able to regulate their emotions, more likely to have better grades, higher test scores, greater academic achievement. And I don't think anyone would necessarily argue with that. Um, also, emotional regulation is related to social skills and relationships. Students who are able to are more likely to have positive relationships with their peers and their teachers. And we know that having a positive relationship with your teacher results often in better academic success. You know, they'll be well liked by their classmates and they're more likely, more able to resolve conflicts effectively and be empathetic towards others. We also know that emotional regulation is linked to physical health. You know, it's problems such as headaches, stomach aches, sleep difficulties. All of those things are things that we can help address. And by addressing them, we can tie that back into attendance. We can tie that back into our academic achievement. And we can tie that back into what is perceived as the reason for schools existing, that, you know, academic achievement. So I think that even the most hard-headed of data-driven, results-driven people would be able to see there that there is a benefit to our young people being mentally healthy and teachers having the skills to support them at those first steps where it starts to falter. So we know that emotional regulation can be learned to some extent. So while some students may naturally be better at regulating their emotions, it's a skill that can be developed and improved on through practice, you know, through teaching, through teaching social emotional skills and providing a safe and supportive learning environment to help uh, students develop their emotional regulation skills. So, you know, when we talk about that overall, the, re the research suggests that supporting students with their emotional regulation is an important aspect of promoting their well-being and academic success. So as far as specifics around that, there was a study published in the child development which found that students who were able to regulate their emotions had better grades and were more likely to be engaged in academic work. A review of literature on emotional regulation and academic achievement published in the Educational Psychology Review found that students who are able to regulate their emotions were more likely to have better academic outcomes and higher grades and test scores. A study published in the journal Emotion found that students who were able to regulate their emotions had better relationships with their peers and teachers and were more likely to be liked by their classmates. And a study published in the Journal of School Health found that students who were able to regulate their emotions had fewer health problems such as headaches, stomach aches and sleep difficulties. All of this tied together, you know, hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm by this point preaching to the converted that this is a key thing that we need to 
discuss. And so one of those things that we need to talk about, <coughs> excuse me, uh, when we talk about it is a thing called co-regulation. Now, if you're listening in live and you have heard or this phrase used co-regulation, be interesting to hear your comments as we go through. So don't forget that you can, if you're listening live in the Podbean app, text us in, you can call in to join the chat. You can also, uh, Tweet us at TT Radio Official, or you can tweet me at Lesson Copy, and you'll be able to join in that conversation live. If you're listening back as a podcast, of course, you can still message us through our social media platforms and join that conversation. Share your thoughts. Are you using these things in school? Are you talking about co-regulation? Was it your uh, uh, inset on the first day back, your staff training that you were talking about it? Well, co-regulation for those who haven't used it, or at least my definition of co-regulation, refers to the process of supporting and guiding students in regulating their emotions rather than trying to control and suppress them. Okay, Uh, This approach acknowledges that emotions are a natural and healthy part of being a human being and that individuals have the ability to manage and express their emotions in appropriate ways. So we're stepping away from, you know, being Victorians and the stiff upper lip, as we might have said before, we are acknowledging that emotions are natural and healthy and part of being human. So in co-regulation, the focus is on helping students understand their emotions and identify the strategies for managing them to develop the skills to regulate their own emotional states. And this might involve teaching students about different emotions and how to recognize them in the earlier years, as well as providing guidance and support as students learn to express their emotions in healthy ways. Examples that I've seen before are, you know, it'd be very clear to teachers in primary, sometimes early secondary, when they see children screwing up their work, tearing up their work, uh, wanting to, you know, take that frustration and put it in a ball and get rid of it. Now, this is a fairly normal reaction as a human, and it can cause teachers uh, frustration, you know, that the work is being destroyed, particularly if it's at the end of a piece of writing. But also, if we have the time, if we have the space to talk through those feelings and to understand them and to be able to recognise and to express them in a way that is less disruptive to our learning, then that is an approach that we can take. And Normally, when we talk about that in a one-to-one type situation, we'd be talking about the kind of thing that we talk about when it's co-regulation. We're doing it together. So it's an important aspect of the social-emotional learning, and it helps students develop their self-awareness, their self-regulation, and their social awareness as well, which are essential skills to success in school, which is a social aspect, and in life. And... This co-regulation is a collaborative approach that involves the teacher and the student working together to support the emotional well-being and and foster those healthy relationships. Now, it is important for students to regulate their own emotions rather than trying to control and suppress them because emotions are a natural and healthy part of being human. Attempting to control or suppress emotions can lead to all kinds of negative outcomes, such as you know, increased stress, difficulty in relationships, even physical health problems. Uh, whereas on the other hand, regulating your emotions involves acknowledging and accepting them, and finding healthy ways to manage and express them. And this can lead to, you know, a number of benefits for students, including you know their improved mental health. So 
being able to regulate emotions can help students manage stressful situations and maintain overall mental health and well-being. Better relationships, so being able to regulate your emotions can help build and maintain healthier relationships with their peers and their adults. Increased self-awareness, you know, so by learning to recognise and understand our emotions, students become more self-aware and better able to understand their own needs and within the moment. And then hopefully this increased self-regulation so that you're regulating emotions involves being able to manage and control one emotional responses. And that can help you make better decisions and behave more appropriately in different situations. All of that then, as far as school's primary purpose, as some people would believe, can lead to improved academic performance. So students who are able to regulate their emotions are more often focused, engaged, motivated to learn. And this can, of course, lead to their improved academic performance. Now, if we take for a moment how a number of people, and this is where possibly my own personal situation as an educator would differ from others, when we talk about things such as mock exams, whether those be at secondary level or whether they be lower down in primary, where they, they do exist, you know, practice sitting SATS papers exists in primary schools, whether we like to kind of reflect on that or not, it exists. But how you manage that and and your approach to it, is, I would say would define where you sit on this journey. Because I would say that there is a difference between if you are asking children to sit mock papers to see how well they do in the ACAD responses, or if you're asking them to sit mock papers to better acclimatise themselves with the pressures of sitting an exam, or whether you're somewhere in between. Feel free to let me know if you disagree with me entirely that an aspect of sitting mocks should be our ability to emotionally regulate through a one to two hour exam, which can be incredibly stressful and high pressure. Um, that should be a part of how we're doing it. Now, how we support young people through that process can say a lot about the school. If there is a child who struggles sitting in the exam hall during mocks, what happens at your school? What would you expect the response to be of someone? And this, you know, at the start, I talked about emotions as we are not just talking about emotions as being tearful or being quiet. We are talking about, you know, that could present as being frustrated and angry and screwing up the paper into a ball in frustration to get rid of that frustrating thing from our life. All of those aspects exist. So how would you as a school respond to that? You know, a very interesting uh, question to, to, to ponder uh, with your staff team. So some strategies that you could use when we talk about co-regulation then, um, helping guide the students in regulating their own emotions so the first one that you know that i'd want to talk through is modeling so teachers can model appropriate uh emotional expression and regulation for students by demonstrating some of those healthy ways of handling strong emotions so for example a teacher might take a deep breath and count to 10 before responding to a frustrating situation now you can choose to do this in the same way that we model answers on the board we can model our emotional interactions with each other. Um, we can 
for example, you know, I I would say that if you manage to get through your teaching week without your interactive whiteboard not working, without your computer not working, you know, you have multiple opportunities to model appropriate emotional response to frustration. You know, there, there, there is a whole gamut there for you. So modeling is one of the first things we can do. One of the second things we can do then is reflective listening. And, and teachers can help students to understand and regulate their emotions by using this reflective listening. And this involves repeating back to the student what they've said and asking open-ended questions. This is sometimes referred to as emotional coaching in a way, or, or emotion coaching, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're in. Um, and it, it can help them explore their feelings further. So we are not asking for beyond, and I think that emotion coaching is, is probably a really good descriptive term for it. You know, we are looking to help coach someone to better understand the emotions that they're feeling in a non-judgmental way to find a positive outcome to it. It does take time though. And I will say that when we come to some of the critical aspects of some of these approaches, you know, you will be shouting at me in the comments over Twitter at TT Radio Official saying, you know, how do we achieve this when I am back to back on lessons and I have no time and I have content that I need to cover? All of those things exist. Now, I would, you know, my third one that I would be talking about or hoping that people are talking about are relaxation techniques, including deep breathing. So we're talking about teaching students deep breathing and relaxation techniques that can help them calm down and regulate their emotions. So for example, you as a teacher can lead a class at a primary level in a guided meditation, teach students about how to do those deep belly breaths. You know, we can talk about those things or there are other ways, meditative techniques that you can use, such as taking your finger as you listen now and placing it on your thumb. And if you run that index finger down the groove in between your thumb and your forefinger and back up to the, the tip of your index finger and then back down again and up to the tip of your, uh, I don't know what that finger's called, but the one that you, you, you stick up if you're being rude to someone uh, and then back down. And so into those peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys and around and up and down. And it's a very easy and relaxing approach to take and you can teach these and all of these techniques that you should be equipping students with because some people will not like any of them i'm not a big fan of deep breathing although i have seen it work for others and i have used it co-regulating with students to help them you know con control their own emotions regulate their own emotions and one of the final things that, that we can talk about there as well is, is the problem solving aspect that we have with that as well. So, you know, when we find our time to sit with a student to uh, help students brainstorm and work through the potential solutions to problems that can help them feel more in control and better able to regulate. Now, this is a great aspect if you are looking for an intervention around co-regulation where you can sit and take problems that are not the student's own and you can discuss through and you can uh, talk about how the characters within the stories should be dealing with it. A great aspect for this where I've seen it used is if any of you have watched any of those TV shows that are on in the UK, such as Educating Cardiff, Educating Yorkshire, where there are schools with real situations happening. If you watch pieces of that with students and discuss what's going on, how they're uh, the people within that are feeling, how the teachers are feeling, how the young people are feeling, 
we start to look at that problem solving and emotion recognition of teaching students to recognize and label their emotions uh, to help them better understand and manage them. You know, uh, it can be used, uh, particularly in the early years, with flashcards, pictures of different facial expressions to help students identify and name and understand those emotions. Now, what that does for us then is it builds this bank of co-regulating strategies, of emotion regulation strategies, of teaching the students these specific strategies to regulate their emotions. And we do that alongside them to start with before we set them free, as we would in any educational, you know, whether it be learning to read, whether it be learning to ride a bike, we do it together. Uh, we're just talking about doing it with emotions. Now, again, there's, you know, a growing body of research that supports the effective use of co-regulation in promoting healthy emotional development and social emotional learning. You know, there was a study that found that when caregivers used co-regulating strategies, such as offering emotional support and guidance, children showed increased emotional awareness and regulation. And there was other research that showed that this co-regulation can improve children's ability to recognize and express their emotions, as well as cope with the stress of challenging situations and reduce problem behaviours such as aggression and non-compliance. Now, when I, I want you to think about a challenging situation that you've had, and, and that can be with your own children, it can be in your own life, it can be at school, where you are faced with someone who is struggling to regulate or interact with their own emotions, and how that has affected the situation for you. And I would say that a number of incidents that happen and I know it's cliched to say that you know behavior is communication and all of these things and it isn't quite what I'm saying what I'm saying is that, that, that there are sometimes reasons behind it and those aren't excuses but if we can support people to overcome the reasons then we don't need to worry about whether it's an excuse or not you know this co-regulation can foster all kinds of social emotional learning in children, providing them opportunities to practice and develop these skills such as empathy, communication, problem solving. So for me, it's an effective approach for us to develop social emotional learning in students. And it's important for teachers to recognize the role that the emotions play in learning and development and provide students with the opportunities to regulate their own emotions in healthy ways and the guidance to regulate their own emotions in healthy ways. So, you know, if we're talking about emotional regulation, if we're talking about co-regulation, those are what we mean. Now, the other word that I've thrown around in the start to this is de-escalation, where we are going to take a, a heightened situation. We're going to de-escalate it. And those are the two most commonly used. Now, if you use de-escalation techniques, I'm thinking where you most likely will have come across it is perhaps you will have had, as I say, some kind of training on the fact maybe you're an on-call member of staff. You've had some kind of de-escalation training in dealing with, you know, when, you, when you're called to a classroom to deal with a, a child who is uh, agitated, angry or aggressive and, and how you're going to calm that situation down. It's often used, you know, and people are often surprised by this, when you train to do physical restraint uh, in most courses now, you're talking about 75% of the course's de-escalation techniques before you even get close to using any kind of physical restraint. So it involves using specific strategies and techniques to help reduce tension and conflict 
and help individuals regulate their emotions in the moment. So we're talking not about the pre-teaching, which is what co-regulating was. Some of co-regulating can be done in the moment when it is, you know, heightened, agitated, angry, aggressive, or upset. We begin to start talking about de-escalation and bringing that situation down, finding our calm. Uh, and so in the context of working with students, de-escalation involves a variety of approaches to help the students calm down and manage their emotions. So things that you may have seen used or you might use yourself, it would be interesting to hear what people's approaches or preferred approach de-escalating situations. Uh, one of them, of course, is using that calm and reassuring tone of voice. We try not to get heightened. And we'll talk a little bit about that. It's not matching them within the moment. Offering choices or options to the student providing physical space and time and also emotional space and time to calm down using visual prompts body language to support and signal to the students so that they understand the process we can co-regulate with them we can model appropriate emotional regulation strategies to the student and we can provide structured and predictable routines in that moment and, and in the environment to help the students feel more secure and safe and in control within the moment. So I'm going to talk about, first of all, some tips that were uh, given by a, a pupil referral unit head, uh, Leanne Ford-Nacy, and this was from 2018, and it was in the test, and, and she gave some tips for teachers around de-escalating behaviour. Now, I struggle with this, you know, use of the word, you know, when we talk about behaviours, when we talk about emotions, how they interact. But if we're talking about de-escalating a situation or de-escalating some emotions that have become heightened, you know, she says the language that we use is an important factor in helping calm pupils in emotional situations. Uh, she starts off by saying for us, uh, do you ever stop and think about the language you use when talking about challenging children in your school? It was something that I decided to focus on this year. Changing the language in our school would be tough. It was so ingrained and came so naturally from uh, frustration, but I realized it was only half the battle. So she's talking about there, the what the adult is bringing. I think that is key for us to remember as we go through. She says, don't get me wrong, it's difficult to regulate your language when you're dealing with a heightened pupil. We've all been guilty of saying things that are not constructive or that dehumanise the child. She gives some examples. And, you know, if we reflect on whether we've heard any of these or not, and you can comment, you can text us in, you can call in uh, if you're listening in the Podbean app. But of course, you can tweet us at TT Radio Official as well. Um, she says she's heard some of these numerous times. Uh, what will it take for that kid to actually be permanently excluded? I've, I've heard that myself. Is it chosen and learned behaviour? Oh no, sorry, it is chosen and learned behaviour. It has to stop, otherwise they can't stay with us. I've heard that as well. It's a lost cause trying to get that one to change. I have to say I've heard that. Uh, that the pupil is just so vile to me and I can't teach them when they're just so horrible. And again, I've heard that. There are different things that people can uh, say worse in front of a child. And the example she gives is uh, having heard people say, you're not the only one with problems you know, I've got problems of my own, but do you see me behaving like that? Ouch, you know, but not far off, I would say things that I have heard myself. And 
this one she gives as well, saying, other people want to learn just because you don't care about ending up with nothing. It doesn't mean others want to go that way. Now, you know, you can hear the, the kind of use of, of shame, the use of uh, force, the use of control to, to control emotions. And I'm, you know, I, I'm not labeling us as adults, as teachers and saying that this is necessarily bad or this is necessarily something that, you know, we need to be massively upset with ourselves about. We are human too. And we bring emotions to the classroom too, but we are teachers and we could be teaching emotional skills as well as other things. So the examples that she gives as tips for de-escalation then, rather than the language that you've heard used in her examples there, were try not try your best to not take the abuse personally. This can be easier said than done, but it's important. And I would say yes. This is one of the hardest parts and it is one of the parts why I advocate for teachers and particularly teachers who deal with this and middle leaders who are on call having mental health support themselves because you are absorbing uh, a lot of abuse in the moment. But I would say a lot of that abuse is not necessarily directed towards you, well, it is directed towards you, I should say, but it is not about you. It would, Whether it was you or whether it was someone else, it would be coming towards someone. And that is coming because the child is, is not regulating their emotions in, in that way. You can validate their emotions though and it takes practice but it's done in a class of 30 but if you see a student struggling and you can validate their emotions you can begin saying things such as I can see you're upset I can see that this is frustrating I can see that the work is you know annoying you you can talk about all of these things rather than the approach that we might take where we threaten them with a warning I, I want you to picture the child who I talked about tearing up their work, screwing their work into a ball. Now, there are two routes that we could take along that. One of them is telling them not to screw up. One of them is to uh, impose control. Okay. You see the child is getting frustrated. Maybe they start scribbling. That's one of the things that you would notice first. They start to tear at the page. They start to screw it up. And you say, don't do that. Stop that. If you do that, you'll have to have a warning. All of these things are things that I can picture. I can picture myself having said, you know, in my career, in my earlier days. Or we can validate their emotions and we can step in from the that. One of the other tips that she gives is to reduce the drama. A big focus for her, she says, has been on minimising the dramatic nature of incidents through use of language and rather than feeding the drama further and that's something that you know I, I want to talk about a little bit later on well, that's about not escalating we are in we are talking about de-escalation strategies not escalation you cannot meet force with force to de-escalate we are taking the force we are taking the energy out of the situation okay if you need to vent for want of a better word she says about a situation with a pupil to tell them off do it away from the site, away from others, reduce the drama and give them a chance to resolve the issue 
one-to-one. You do not need to do it in front of a class. Uh, she talks about the boundaries of banter, of course, as well. I'm not a fan of banter. I think, you know, if you are using banter as a teacher, feel free to come back at me, of course. You know, if you want to text in, if you want to message me at TT Radio Official, I think banter is a very dangerous approach. Anyone who, you know, enjoys or says that they have a, a good use of banter, I would question around, you know, the, the hazards of that. I think it is a very thin knife edge if you are using banter and what happens when a child banters back, and particularly if they are, are not very good at banter. And I have seen this in my times as well, where, you know, a teacher or, you know, adults in a room are using banter in a uh, refined way because they have learned they are now much older they have used it for a number of years and a young person who is not uses it inappropriately or gets it wrong and then what do you do so the boundaries of banter are one of the issues she says and finally she comes up with a point of um, calling a colleague or a senior leader to support so when you do that just having a new face a new spin change of face, I sometimes call it, can can give that change to the situation, can take the storm out of the situation, can take the drama out of the situation, and can allow you to do it. So those were some of her tips. Now, as I say, there are a number of different techniques that people use. And another uh, blog for um, Optimus Education, Elizabeth Smith, um, in 2016 was talking about some of these things and talking about you know dealing with children who uh, have come with a label an umbrella term of social emotional and mental health needs and the increase in those that we are seeing in mainstream schools and settings and you know how we meet those needs and what we sometimes call this challenging behavior or behavior that normal classroom disciplines and plans are insufficient to deal with, or that we need a different approach to manage, and a way that keeps the class and the class teacher emotionally safe, and of course the child who is presenting those behaviours. Now, she talks about why de-escalation is so difficult, and I would say this is one of the hardest parts for any teacher, and it'd be interesting to hear, you know, your thoughts as well. If you find de-escalation easy, if you find it hard, if it's something that, that you do well, I don't. I'll think of a better way to say it. If it is something that you have practiced to become effective at, because it goes against our natural fight or flight reflexes when faced with a challenging situation, you as the person there, you know, the person who should be in control, are having the same feelings as anyone would, which is your body you you know to either fight or flight or freeze and so if you are faced with a child who is potentially shouting at you you know you uh, as the 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 person receiving that are going to be having those emotional responses so remaining calm and remaining professionally detached is not natural and so it's a skill that needs to be practiced and we need to like retrain ourselves to respond in different ways to challenging situations. And so, you know, reasoning with an angry child is not possible, but it's our role as caring teachers to give an immediate response. And so our aim should be to reduce the level of agitation so we can get to a point where discussion, where that co-regulation can be a point. Now, 
you know, we've talked a little bit about what that looks like and when to de-escalate. And she gives some examples of things, but the hard part of this, and I think this is particularly hard for secondary school teachers who maybe see their children less in a primary school setting, um, you spend a lot of time with the young people and you become very aware of those cues, those clues to when they're going. The the examples of early signs of agitation that she gives in her her blog are balled up fists, fidgeting, shaking, eyeballing another child, head thrust forward, a clenched jaw, speech becoming more rapid or high-pitched, and how these signs, you know, can be interpreted and not ignored so that we don't turn our back on an angry child and just hope that they calm down. Now, the thing that she talks about when faced with that is is a thing called pacing, and it's not a phrase that I've heard before. If you have heard the phrase pacing before, it'd be great to hear your, your, your input. It, it, I call it the opposite. I call it escalating as opposed to de-escalating. But she talks about a cycle of feeding off someone's emotions and escalating it, calling it pacing. If a child makes you ang- as angry as them, it gives them permission to become even angrier so the child can justify their whole situations, the whole situation and their hostility. And I'm sure that we can reflect on that if we see people, that idea of escalating the situation where the teacher begins shouting and the child is shouting back and it becomes a battle of wills and a force of control is not going to be productive to any of us and it is not for me teaching you know if we are accept that we need to address mental health issues within school then us teaching through co-regulation, de-escalating the situation, and then teaching through co-regulation is going to be that part. So she suggests allowing space, which you know we've talked about already, controlling your breathing, you know, which does help us almost meditating ourselves, keeping our low and even tone, and using distraction and diversion. And I think that many of us will be clear when we've dealt with those situations that. that distracting talking about something from at home talking about their football team talking about any of those things are great tips for de-escalating the situation now things that she says to avoid of course are making threats you can't carry through being defensive or taking it personally she again says do not use humor unless you're sure it will help i would say the same about banter you know it's a very fine line do not use sarcasm you know, it, those are things that do not, are very thin. You know, I'm sure there were people here who will give me examples of, of times that they've used it where it has worked or with specific students who it does work with. You know, I think those are things that are risky. And I, the whole point of de-escalation and then co-regulation, you know, through our attunement and our understanding is getting to that level where we can be the professional and te- coach them through their emotions. So after the outburst, making time to debrief and repair and rebuild, you know, the relationships. Now, as we come to the end then, and we've talked about, you know, a number of these situations about how we can do it, you know, and and, and those tips. I did say at the start that people would be shouting at me either through, you know, through our Twitter accounts at TT Radio Official or 
if you're listening live, you know, feel free to criticize me entirely as I, I go on to criticize myself in this very last part about the barriers you will face if you are looking to build time or to use some of these techniques in school. Some of the negatives to using emotional regulation techniques in school are, of course, the lack of resourcings. Implementing emotional regulation techniques may require additional resources such as training for teachers and staff, materials for students, and you might not have the budget to support and provide these. I said at the start that I'd be really interested in hearing from people about whether there has been an increase in their pastoral budgets for their schools or whether they are considering it when we know that there's been a 39% increase in young people seeking mental health support. Of course, there's time constraints as well. And, uh, I, you know, as a classroom teacher myself, I will say, you know, when teaching emotional uh, regulation techniques, it takes time away from other subjects. And also when using them in the moment to de-escalate or co-regulate, it takes time away from teaching the core subject that is on the timetable at the time. Now, Another issue that we might face, and you know, this is something that comes up often, is resistance from from other teachers or students. Some teachers might be resistant to you know learning or implementing emotional regulation techniques, or students might resist participating in some of the activities. That's where a whole school culture has to come in, and that's where we have to work together. But hopefully, you know, the research there, and if you want to message me, I can give you those research links again about the effectiveness of this and the outcome of that effectiveness being improved academic attainment and academic engagement in your subject paying that little bit of time at the start um, I, I think really is a benefit for us some people also and we have mentioned this when we're talking about mindfulness will raise as an issue the ineffectiveness and yeah there are some emotional regulation techniques that we have been sold that might not be as effective for all students in all situations and it is really care important for us to carefully evaluate the effectiveness and techniques being used you know i would say that i'm thinking maybe five years ago now six years ago there was a bit of an influx of mindfulness coloring that i saw in primary schools of meditation classes It'd be interesting to hear how many of those are still going on um and the final point, I think, and this one for me, you know, is a struggle that I think about is the ethical considerations of us when we talk about de-escalation and co-regulation, because it is very easy for us to, to think about ourselves as saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, we are not controlling children by shouting at them. We are not controlling children by punishing them. There may still be ethical considerations when considering using emotional regulation techniques, such as the potential for coercion and manipulation. So it's important to ensure that any techniques being used are used in an ethical and respectful manner. We are still uh, choosing to change the direction of someone's behaviour in what we're doing. We might not be shouting, but we are still in some way controlling through de-escalation and co-regulation, the emotions and the activities of the young people in our care. And so I think, you know, there, there is still something to be considered there about how we do it, why we do it, and when we do it. Now, as I say, we have wrapped up there uh, very quickly 
um, a whole range of things. Uh, before we shoot, it is uh, just another chance for me to give a big shout out to uh, an organisation that supports us in making sure these uh, shows, these radio and as podcasts get to you. And that's John Cat Educational, who fill my bookshelf I should say as we go uh you know so a big shout out to them this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational a leading publisher of books directories educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond have you checked out their latest releases don't miss out visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today Happy reading. And I'm not joking. They have had so much money off me over the years. Wonderful books. And I will continue to, as you say, you can find them on Twitter at John Cat Ed, and you can find us at TT Radio Official. Now, if you're listening in live um, and you have uh, the opportunity to join us on Twitter, 7.30, there's going to be a spaces. Tom Rogers is hosting. Uh, he's got Dr. Kathy Weston and Dr. Ian Kinane. They're talking about toxic masculinity, so a really uh, topical topic at the moment. It's a really interesting uh, show there for you, which, of course, will be available to listen back, as will this and all of our shows, at ttradio.org slash listen back, where you can search uh, topics such as in the search bar. You could type in toxic masculinity and it would pull up all the previous shows from our thousands that have been on the air so far. Um, Thank you for joining us. been a great start to the year hopefully we'll continue on with it and uh, from here in south wales i will say no star which is good night and we'll see you all next week you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on teachers talk radio